The following is a production of the Event Safety Alliance. Hi, this is Steve Edelman. Welcome back to the Event Safety Alliance podcast. Today, we're going to talk about crowd management with Eric Stewart from Gentian Events Limited in the United Kingdom. Crowd management. We're going to cover a few things related to this topic. First, we're going to deal with some basic definitions. People who don't do crowd management use a few terms like crowd control as if they're interchangeable with crowd management. We're going to explain why they're not so that we can use words correctly. Because when you use words correctly, then you can apply them correctly. And that's really where this podcast is going. We want to talk about how to apply the principles of crowd management. And that's why we're talking with Eric Stewart, because Eric leads the Crowd Safety Symposium for the Event Safety Alliance in various cities and towns throughout North America. And, well, Eric understands the various physical, mental, and psychological issues that relate to crowds and the way crowds behave. So, Eric, let me ask you a a threshold question, which is the definition. What is crowd management, and how does it differ from crowd control? Hi, Steve, and uh, hi, guys. Yeah, it's probably the most important question that we need to understand, and it's something that we often need to explain to the authorities because frequently they don't quite understand the difference. In its very simplest terms, for me, crowd management is what we do to influence crowds to get them to behave safely on the way to, at, and from our events. And that's going to include everything from anticipating their emergency behaviours anticipating their normal behaviours, supplying the signage and the staff and managing on the day to make sure that everything works smoothly. That's crowd management. I'll I'll break it down a little bit further in in a minute or so. Crowd control is either the use or suggested use of force to make people do something that they might not want to do. And for me, the trick for a crowd manager is that most times the crowd won't even know it's being managed. It's doing what you desire it to do by making those signs and those influences apply so that people just do the right thing, the safe thing, without them ever even knowing that there's crowd management in place. And quite often I'll get clients will ask me, what's your job as a crowd manager in terms of the crowd? You know, what do they see? And, and the answer to that should be nothing. They shouldn't even know a crowd manager exists. There's no need for them to know. We work in the background. Yeah, occasionally we'll grab a loud hailer and talk to people, but that's last ditch. We shouldn't be having to do that. And Eric, in your background, you know, during your your professional career, you have served in the function of crowd control. You've done law enforcement work, and now you do crowd management also. How do they differ? Uh, they, They differ really significantly if you understand the difference. I was a police officer in London in the UK for 33 years and my role for the last 11-12 years of that was planning major events so Notting Hill Carnival some people will have heard of that's a a 1 million plus event the New Year's Eve celebrations in London and and finally my last job was the Olympic torch relay something like 14 million people over 70 or so days 
And on that last one particularly, we did crowd management. We had an understanding of crowds. But my career, if you like, now goes back probably to 2005, where New Year's Eve event didn't go as well as it should have done. And that was through our lack of understanding of techniques for crowd management, not understanding our crowd and how they were likely to be influenced. And that was a bad night. On, on London's embankment and outside Westminster Tube Station, we hurt quite a lot of people because the plans went wrong. And then we had to rush in and start doing crowd control. But it was only after that, when I, with others, sat down and looked at what went wrong, that I started to understand this huge difference. And I was a public order police officer for part of my role for a long time. And I, I understand crowd control. I knew about the use of dogs and barriers and horses and water cannon and batons and spray. That's crowd control at, at its top level. What I didn't understand was those lower level, softer techniques that you use to plan for and then to influence crowds. Um, so I've done both. And I, I know that the crowd control is only and should only be there when it's absolutely necessary. If the management techniques work, you should never have to switch to crowd control. So I'm looking at the page on the Event Safety Alliance website for the Crowd Safety Symposium that you, Eric Stewart, lead. And the first subhead says, Crowd Safety, colon, combining math, physics, psychology, and behaviors to achieve safe outcomes. So Eric, how do you combine math, physics, psychology, and behaviors to achieve safe outcomes? What is that? And is it too hard for us who are arts and humanities people? Uh, no, I don't think it is. And, and one of the, the real successes, I think, of my course is that as I say things, I see the scales come off people's eyes. I don't tell them much that they don't already know. It's just putting what they know together and recognizing things that they've seen and making them understand why those things happened. And actually, most people walk away from that two-day course and go, yeah, I get it. I probably already did get it, but I didn't understand that I got it. So those, those three or sometimes four things I talk, because I, I sometimes bolt an extra piece onto those three and, and talk about the experience or our experiences. Uh, if, I, if I talk firstly about, and I apologize if I slip into the British mathematics as opposed to the, the North American math, but if I talk about the math, it's understanding some really basic principles. How quickly do people walk? How quickly, in certain circumstances, and under what motivation, will people walk from A to B? And if you understand that, they may dawdle quite slowly on the way up to an event site from the car park, from the bus station, from the train terminus, then it's going to be a slow, steady progression. But when they're going home at night, and there's only two trains left, that speed is going to increase. And understanding the speed at which they're going to cover the ground under those circumstances is really important. But if we switch just for a second to the very last part, the psychology and the understanding and experience of crowds, that's gonna make a huge difference as to whether they're teenagers going to a pop concert or older folk going to a classical music concert. And if you don't even start with that principle, the math is null and void. You can't work out flow rates unless you know the people that you're dealing with, their likely behaviors and their motivations. So in a way, I maybe should have put the psychology and the behaviors at the top of the list. But if we go back to the math, 
as far as the math is concerned, it's two basic principles, that flow rate and speed. And the second is around about how many people you can fit into a space safely, not just how many you can squeeze in for maximizing ticket sales, but how many you can actually put into there. And we, we're pretty fortunate over here. We have a, a crowd management British standard. Uh, it's called BS8406, and it's, it's about event stewarding that we use. And it defines pretty clearly what that is. And it's about assessing the amount of space that you've got available, how much safe space you've got, and the levels of occupancy that you want to put in there. If I've got a young, fit, teenage crowd, I can put a lot more people into that space than perhaps I'd want to if it was an older group coming to an ACDC concert in their 50s who are physically bigger people and older people who want a little bit more space. And if I then take that to an operatic crowd and they might be sitting on blankets on the grass having a picnic and a bottle of champagne, that's completely different as well. So assessing the space and the density at which you want to put people in there, that's all part of the math as well. And then we go on through the, the event standard, the event stewarding standard, and talk about predicting the type of behaviours and, and making sure that we've got the right numbers for the right field for the right show on the right day. So that that's basically the math. Those two things, flow rates and density. But there's an awful lot more associated with it, obviously. So let's stay on the subject of flow rates, which is how quickly people will move through space. Is that yeah. more or less right? Okay. Yeah. Do flow rates change even? So let's take some generic person, you know, the Eric Stewart and Steve Edelman in any given crowd. Do their flow rates change depending on like what they're trying to reach or under what circumstances or whether it's daytime or nighttime or whether they're impaired or not? Or does everyone just have a flow rate? No, and, and you've hit the nail right on the head there. Those things that you mentioned are all absolutely crucial. So we we talk over here about a basic flow rate of 82 people going through a one meter gap in one minute. So you'll hear me often throw out that phrase, 82 people per meter per minute. If my gate or my doorway is one meter wide, on a normal day, I would expect 82 people to be able to walk through it in a minute. And if I've got 10 meters, then it's 820, simple math. But that assumes a flat level hard surface in daylight and for reasonably fit people. And our guidance is pretty clear. You take away the flat level hard surface, you take away reasonably fit people and you take away daylight and everything you then apply is a reduction factor. Now the question I'm probably most often asked both at the courses that we do, the symposiums, and when I'm at meetings and planning meetings is, where's the table that shows me how much to reduce the flow rate by? And I would love to be able to do that one day. One day when I've got billions of bits of data that I can play with on a computer and thousands of hours to experiment with people, we can come up with that table. But, so, so, so that's actually what I was going to ask you. You trotted out, I think, seven different adjectives, you know, <laughs> flat, you know, reasonably fit people, you know, whatever else you said there. How do you quantify those? I mean, you started with a mathematically precise objective number. I was very impressed. But then you tossed in seven adjectives. Now what's the flow rate? Do you remember when I said that there was a fourth criteria? and it included experience, well, that's not just the crowd's experience. 
it's the experience of the manager of that crowd. Um, and I can tell you now that if we went out onto a flat level baseball field uh, and we would walk at a, at a rate of about 82 people per minute, but then we had to walk up the pitcher's mound, we would slow down by around about 10 or 15% initially. If that pitcher's mound was covered in grass, maybe another five or 10%. If the grass was long and wet, or if the ground was muddy, another five or 10%. But you know, metaphorically, I'm sticking my finger in the air at this point, having just licked it, because this is all about the experience that says, I know it's gonna be a five to 10% reduction. There's no precision in those figures whatsoever. And it does, it kind of makes me laugh that we start with a figure that seems so precise, but is actually based on some really old data in some very specific circumstances and could probably never be replicated precisely again. I don't think we'd ever, unless we set people up to march in a certain way, we would ever get 82 people through a one meter gap in one minute. There's too many variables. The older, if, if for instance, we mix in something like family groups, family groups are gonna hold hands and stick together and they're gonna walk at the rate of the slowest person who's normally the four-year-old who will not get into the, the uh, Chair will not get in there no matter what, but maybe hasn't got the energy to keep going and walk at any speed. Mom and dad, or dad and dad, whoever it is, are not going to walk off and leave the child and become part of the average. So, those behaviors, the family clumping together, staying as a unit, are going to have a significant effect. And if your event is a family event, and most of the people coming to it are families, your 82 people per meter per minute is utterly null and void half it or maybe even reduce it by 70 or 80 percent and that would apply even if it's you know an event of you know i don't know say teenagers they travel in packs too i mean my daughter's a teenager i don't see her going a lot of places without her friends tagging along and she probably doesn't go a lot of places without her phone that she's spending an awful lot of time looking down at and this figure of 82 was predicated well before people were walking around distracted by their cell phones. Now, particularly coming out of events, people want to tell everybody about where they've been. You know, we're in a society where if you didn't get a picture and a video and live stream some of it, it didn't happen. It's not real. So people want to do that and they're doing it as they leave. And we're certainly seeing some impact on egress at, at events where flow rates are actually slowing down because people are looking at the floor. They're looking at their cell phones and trying to send off a quick message or maybe get a selfie with their mates to prove that they were there. The outside shot at the big stadium as you walk away with the big show in the background, that big selfie just as you're walking away at night is a super shot that you want to share with everybody else. But while you're doing that, you're not focusing on putting one foot in front of another. And of course, if you're trying to do that in a crowd and you're not focusing on where your feet are going, then there's the real increased risk of trip hazards. You're tripping other people or tripping yourself. And once you or somebody else is on the floor, again, flow rates start to collapse really, really quickly. We've had an incident um, over in Europe just recently that a friend of mine was involved in and did a little bit of data modeling afterwards where a young girl fell on a bridge during an egress of a, around about a 25,000 concert. She fell, her friends clustered around her to protect her but they effectively reduced the bridge from about five meters to one meter on each side of the bridge. And so the flow rate of that bridge is now 
squeezed really tight when we increase the number of people trying to walk into one in one space if we increase their density that slows their flow rate down significantly so we steal three meters from their exit width and then we slow down the two remaining meters that's going to have a huge effect on the actual overall egress or god forbid if it was an evacuation and an emergency that would have a dramatic effect on that flow so the impression that i'm getting is even if we start with what looks like, you know, a really nice objective number, you know, something that, you know, lay people can say, oh, I know what the flow rate of humans should be. It quickly goes off the rails and it's more subjective. Is that fair? It's very fair. And it's, you know, one of the areas that I focus on, you know, on day two of the course, we try to do an awful lot of work around psychology and behaviors that we can then build into the math to understand that better. We have been, particularly in the UK, but, but across Europe and parts of the US, we've been really good in the last 20 years or so about understanding the math and the physics. We've been less good about understanding the psychology and the human behaviors that affect these flow rates. And that's the bit that we need to really focus our efforts and, and our um, work on at the moment. So yeah, you start with a really valid figure, which you know is proved historically as a good starting point. But then the amount of other science that you have to throw in there makes it seem at the end so subjective that you wonder why you bothered. But it is important because we have to have a starting point. People need to understand if they're working with crowds that there is a start point to give them confidence and to give them a realistic perspective of, of where that start point is. But let's face it, we're dealing with averages here. And when you average human beings, you don't come up with very satisfactory answers sit in a room of 100 people and ask the average person to put their hand up and you're not going to get a very good answer. And one of, the, one of the really poor, appalling jokes that I regularly crack on my course is if I put my head in the oven and my feet into the freezer, on average, I'm going to be the right temperature. But it's just two extremes. It's just a figure that actually means nothing. If my core temperature is the right temperature, but my head are at one extreme and my feet are at the other, then it means nothing whatsoever. And our flow rates, we have a start point, and we then reduce down, applying all those human factors, but we do need to have a start point. I guess the, the point that I think is important here is, even if we start with an objective number and then add seven adjectives, which makes that objective number considerably more subjective, it's not that we should simply throw out all objectivity. It's not that anyone can just make up their own number or estimate about how crowds are going to move. There actually are factors to consider. Yeah. And that's why I think for, for both of us, for, for yourselves in the U S and Canada and, and us in the UK, particularly, we use these figures in a way that gives us a starting point, but we put them into guidance. We put them into standards. We don't make them the law because if you made the figure, the law, it would be wrong straight away. It's the experience of the people using the guidance and using the standards and the people that they talk to and the people that teach them that then makes those realistic figures. And that's what we're trying to do. Yes, there has to be a start point. And we have another figure in the UK of, of 109 people per meter per minute, which is an old figure, but some still on rely on, some people still rely on. And it, it really worries me that that is a figure that's relied on. And that's within our fire guidance. Um, and most people acknowledge that it's out of date and 82 is a better figure. 
But even if you then apply all of your human criteria to the higher figure, you still come up with a, a much, much lower figure. You can't just assume that two groups of people, two completely different types of human beings, are going to do the same thing under given circumstances. We know, for instance, that young people react actually better in emergencies because they're less concerned about looking stupid. They aren't worried about being embarrassed. They will run away screaming from the danger. As adults, as we get older, we try to rationalize what's going on and human elements come in that make us try to look at the danger and, and think that it's something different, something safe. So we react much more slowly. And understanding the differences between the young people who might just click and run and scream and those who might step there scratching our beards and trying to work out what's going on around us is another important part of the math because that way you're going to get a very, very quick reaction from the young people and a really slow reaction from the older people. And when the older people start to move, they're going to move more slowly as well. So they're all elements that have to be brought into this. So let me ask you a question that Tim Roberts, who was on our last podcast, and I have long had a, an agreement about, and I want to see if you agree or have a different take. When we look at how crowds behave in emergencies, one of the things that we see on TV is people running and screaming and panicking and, and crying and, and you know tearing at their clothes and doing all sorts of insane things. In your experience, Eric Stewart, is crowd panic a widespread response to some emergency stimulus? No. Why not? No. A number of reasons. One is that we're all different, so we react differently. And, and this is one of the impossible challenges, is trying to predict how each individual reacts, would react in the emergency. Because... We don't know how we would react in an emergency. We think we do. We have a good idea of what we think we would do in an emergency. But no two emergencies are the same, and I'm not the same today as I was yesterday or will be tomorrow. My reactions will be different yesterday from last week or next year. I may see something occur to me that may make me react differently. Now, significantly, we know if we compare two of the terrorist attacks in the UK, the Westminster Bridge attack came first and it was the first incident we'd had in the UK of a, a vehicle driving into crowds. And there was a very slow dawning, a very slow realisation by the people on that bridge what was happening. Yet at the moment in the UK, we're hearing the inquests and inquiry into the London Bridge attack, which came just a few weeks later. And the raised sense of alertness and awareness in the public in the UK because of what happened on Westminster Bridge meant that on London Bridge, it was almost instantaneous. Most of the people spoken to immediately afterwards and in the statements that were taken days, weeks and months afterwards and now at the inquest say, I knew straight away what was happening. So their perception had been changed by the news reports from three weeks before, four weeks before, and therefore their behavior changed. They reacted really, really quickly. But in both of those instances, what we hardly ever see is what we deem to be panic. And that is the classic running away and screaming. As an instant reaction, as an instantaneous, I need to get away from the source of danger, there are three factors that, that come into play. 
our body kicks in, the adrenaline kicks in, all those chemicals squirt around our bodies, and one of our emergency behaviors will kick in. One is flight, one is fight, and the other one that very rarely gets mentioned is freeze. You know, it's an instinctive reaction in animals if they're under attack by predators to freeze and hope that the other animal won't sense the movement. For us, that's developed over the years, not particularly well, but it's developed so that we see major catastrophes unfolding in front of our eyes and our brains struggle to cope to take in what's happening. And so we are rooted to the spot, shocked, but not what we might call panicking, just trying to assess and let our brains accumulate all that data and all that information that's going on. And then we may run away screaming, but it's actually quite rare. And there was a huge piece of, of work that's taken place historically. And what we discover is that a lot of people turn and the instinctive run from the scene occurs, but occurs maybe just for one or two seconds. And then they kind of glance back, see that there are other people in danger and then go to help. And all of the evidence suggests that for the majority of people involved in these major incidents, we actually become much better people than we think we would be. We go and help casualties. We turn around, we walk towards danger. Westminster Bridge, London Bridge, within seconds of those attacks, there are people on their hands and knees on the floor helping other people, even though the danger still exists and is very close by to them. The problem with panic is it's the story we've been told all our lives. It makes great headlines on the front page of newspapers or now the instant Twitter feed, the instant uh, news media, Panic is a great headline. Stampede is a great headline. Trampling is a great headline. The headline that says a bomb went off and a few people ran away, but most people came back and helped the casualties kind of doesn't grab the headlines in the same way. So there is that media problem. That's what we've been force fed all our lives. But the other problem is our film industry and our TV industry who they display and demonstrate panic in the way they expect people to behave, to run away screaming when Godzilla comes around the corner. And the reality is they rarely do. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that panic doesn't exist. It does, uh, it genuinely does. The, the overwhelming sense of fear that occurs, sometimes the physical loss of control. We know people, there's an old expression, um, I was so scared that I cracked myself. That's not made up. That's a, that's a fact. You know, some people in those situations literally lose control of their bodily functions. A small percentage. It will occur. It can occur. If you're trapped, if you're in a smoky environment, if you are separated from loved ones is one of the most awful. If you are in a building and you know your family have just gone off to another room and something catastrophic happens, that overwhelming sense of fear and the desire and need to reunite will make you do something that may appear completely illogical to everybody else. And you may well walk into the smoke and you may well walk into the flames to try to reunite with your family before you even consider evacuating yourself. Now, if someone saw you doing that, they would probably call that panic behavior. But I think it's perfectly rational. I'm not going to be separated from my loved ones and walk out safely out the front door of a building when I know that my family are still inside. But that's not panic. That's normal human behavior. Yeah, I agree with that, obviously. Um, and for listeners of this podcast, if you're interested in learning more about why most people in an emergency situation do not 
panic, as Eric was just explaining, there is in fact a substantial body of literature, mostly accounts of people who survived disasters describing what they and the people around them did in real time. And from this substantial body of literature, as far as I know, going back to the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire of 1911, uh, there emerges, you know, what crowd psychologists have termed the 10-80-10 rule, which is basically just the bell-shaped curve. And that winds up being 10% of people perceive quickly and react decisively. That's only 10%. Um, you know, they often have some training or life experience that makes them unusually perceptive to whatever is the emergency. Then there's the fat part of the bell-shaped curve, the 80%. And they're the ones that Eric Stewart was just referring to as people who might initially take a couple of steps, but then will turn around and see what else is going on. Or maybe they'll just mill around and, and just kind of be inert until someone else grabs them by the lapels and says, hey, let's go. Um, that's the fat part of the bell-shaped curve. And then there's the far side, the 10% who do what we see on TV, which most people would refer to as panic. But anyway, there is a substantial body of historical literature, you know, again, from the early 20th century through, you know, current news accounts of how people respond um, mostly to bombings and shootings, because we have more of those and fewer building fires now. Uh, but there's no reason to have a knee-jerk reaction to think, oh, people will just panic, because in fact, it is well documented that that's not the case. No, and that, that's a major challenge for us. It's the principal reason why our emergency services and our governments, to a certain extent, don't want to share the full facts of what is going on in the emergency situation because they fear that people will panic, panic based on what they've heard before, based on our concept and our understanding of what panic is. Uh, our suggestion would always be that wherever feasible, we maximise the amount of good quality information that we give to the public in these situations. And by doing that, we find that well-informed, sensible people make well-informed, sensible decisions. But if you keep them in the dark, they make it up. People need, especially now, the, the state of modern communication is that people have an expectation to get instant information. And if they don't get it, they will create other situations. And they will create stories that are worse. <laughs> the, the cell phone is is king, absolute king. You know, people live their lives absolutely through their cell phones now. If we don't get them that information, they will make it up, they will start their own Twitter feeds, they'll start spreading gossip and rumor, which will probably be worse than the real situation. And then based on that, they'll make really bad decisions and decisions that we are gonna to struggle to help them with. Going back to that, um, that research, Steve, one of, the, um, one of the pieces of reading I like to refer to is, Professor Lee Clark's document, uh, an article that's online and it's free, called Panic, Myth or Reality. And Lee Clark's been studying these situations for 50 years and will tell you there is very, very little evidence of people losing control uh, and in, as in panicking in these emergency situations. I think that's, you know, that, that's worth 20 minutes of anybody's time in their day to download and read that document. I agree. And... I will second a recommendation for Lee Clark. I actually have 
I think his book, Worst Cases, uh, which is also interesting reading. But, you know, again, for a, a simple bite-sized nugget, uh, just look up Lee Clark and crowds um, online and you'll find something that's quite useful because I guess it's important to me and one of the reasons that we're doing this podcast with you, Eric Stewart, thank you for doing this, is this is not hard. There's no reason to have mistaken impressions of what crowds do either during normal situations or emergencies. You know, as you said at the top of this podcast, Eric, when you do your crowd safety symposium, people often say, I kind of knew this stuff already, but I didn't know it this way. I guess it wasn't, you know, front of my mind, and now it is. And I think that's really important. I, I'm not an academic. I, mean, I, I don't consider myself to be very clever, very highly educated. I'm just a normal guy that stumbled across something which I actually find relatively simple, although absolutely fascinating. And I teach other people stuff that they find relatively simple, but absolutely fascinating. And it's not hard. It's not complicated. It does take a little bit of time. It does take a little bit of focus and that time out in your office to sit down and, and think about who my crowd are and how they're going to behave under certain circumstances. Um, but I, I don't think it's complicated at all. I'm, I'm, I do sometimes feel slightly embarrassed that I'm teaching stuff, which once I've taught it to the people sitting there is really obvious. And I wonder whether I'm, you know, am, am I overcomplicating something? And I don't think I am. I, I sometimes wonder if I'm oversimplifying it, but I don't think I'm doing that either. It's simple stuff that once you point it out, people go, yeah, I get it. I know. And, and now I know, and I've got the confidence to do it. And I, to me, that's the reward. When, when people say, yep, got it, understand, and I'm now going to use it. And we get feedback, you know, from the US, the symposium, we've had so much feedback from people saying, two days after your course, this happened, and I did that. It took me 30 seconds to implement, and the result of that was it all worked really well. Whereas we know if we hadn't done that, it would have been catastrophic. And that, you know, that's the reward. It's, it's amazing when you get those feedbacks. I, I want to segue to something that relates back to a comment you made earlier that standards are guidance, not law. And being a lawyer, I'm always sensitive when somebody refers to law. In this instance, I wholeheartedly agree with you. And so having discussed the crowd safety symposium, I, I want to just briefly raise another issue that the Event Safety Alliance has been heavily involved in, which is the creation of what will, God willing, very soon be an ANSI standard, an American National Standards Institute standard for crowd management. And the segue is, when I look at most ANSI standards, they have objective criteria. They have numbers and calculations that one can do. And this crowd management standard has very few of those. Mostly they're just referring to other people's numbers, like in the NFPA life safety code, very valuable information as a starting place. But almost the entirety of the text of this crowd management ANSI standard is things to think about, guidance, followed by questions that one might consider depending on the circumstances of their event. Having said all that, my question to you, Eric Stewart, is, is that a 
good way of prompting people to think about how to manage their crowds? I, I think it's the only way. I, I don't think we can apply rigid rules to crowds. I, now, don't get me wrong here. I do not have a problem with computer modeling. I think computer modeling absolutely has a place. Uh, and I, I, I don't challenge computer modeling in its place. But computers are yet to realistically represent the behaviors of human beings. Now, maybe a few years down the road, and maybe some people are getting close to it with artificial intelligence. If we feed artificial human intelligence into computer modeling, we may get some spectacularly accurate results. But at the moment, those computer models that we see are not driven by human behaviors. They're not driven by desire and passion and fear and anger and love. The stuff that's going on within people's heads is not going on within computer models. So I don't dismiss them. They're a very good way of demonstrating where problems are likely to occur. I, for me, they just don't give me 100% accurate information. They certainly don't give me a, a genuine prediction of what is definitely going to happen. But they certainly give me pinch points and they'll give me likely places where things could occur. So if we say this is the way to do it and these are the numbers you must use without bringing in those human elements, we fail. We absolutely fail. Unless un people have a basic understanding of the psychology of the human brain and how it works, and, and you and I have spoken extensively in the past, some of the factors that affect us in our decision-making processes, our learned behaviors which become automatic, in emergencies and, and under stress situations. Things like normalcy bias, that delay whilst our stupid grown-up brains try to rationalize why this man is walking towards us with a gun, therefore we must be on a film set, whereas the teenager would just turn and run, wouldn't even try to explain that situation. You can't apply a number to the seconds in which that individual is going to take to recognize that as a genuine emergency and not a film set because we are all different and we'll all be different every day what's that old phrase no man crosses the same river twice because it's not the same river and he's not the same man my reaction to an emergency situation on thursday will be different from a sunday afternoon because on a sunday afternoon i tend to be a little bit more relaxed so I'm going to be slower. So if I try to apply figures and then tell people that that's the law that they must follow, we'll fail. We've got to understand human beings. We can give people general principles. We can explain why people do things under certain circumstances. And if you give me a 30,000 crowd next week and you can tell me every life experience that every one of those 30,000 people have had over their last 10, 15 70 years, I could probably make you a really accurate crowd management plan, but it's not going to happen. I don't know what people have been through. I don't know what emergencies people have been in. I don't know what crisis they've lived through or even just how stressed they've arrived that day because the highway was chock-a-block and they thought they were going to miss the headline. And that applies maybe to 20% of my audience arriving stressed and angry and frustrated. And then we tell them they can't get in without a detailed search without going through their pockets and their anger starts to rise we just changed what that crowd will do later in the day because their day is different from the one they expected that morning you can't write a book well you can write a book on that it would be a very very long one if you try to explain all the multitude of combinations that you were trying to put together and call it science it's a bit of science 
it's definitely very much an art or a craft and experience is one of the biggest factors in relation to that. One of the things that I tell people who are looking to me for crowd management advice or you know what even to think about is I say, you're turning to me for expertise and I can tell you the questions to consider but as for the knowledge of any particular crowd on any particular day, I'm not the expert. You are, because you're the one who's there. You're the one who's seeing people behaving in the environment in which they're behaving. You know what's reasonably foreseeable for that environment in that situation. Look to me for questions. I can prompt you with that, I tell them. But as for the answers, the expert, that's you. Yeah, I completely agree with that. You know, we, we have a system over in the UK where our agencies will examine events, scrutinise paperwork, go through crowd management plans. And I we have this thing called the safety advisory group, which I, I teach some of those people on those courses. And I say one of the, the things you've really got to look out for is a brand new event because there is then no baseline. Or it's a brand new site because it's never been used before. So there's no baseline. Or it's a brand new team putting the event together. Again, no baseline on which to measure them. And if you've got a brand new team with a brand new site, a brand new event, every single alarm bell should be ringing because you have no starting point. So you've got to almost assume the worst and then start building up the experience. Because until you know that crowd, until you know how that site works, how those gates work, and how that team will work together on the event, you have the worst possible combination of circumstances to try to start a brand new event with. Yeah. So Eric, the impression that I'm getting is you and I could chat about this for, oh, let's just say two days. Easy. But easy. But we don't have time for that in this podcast. So if somebody were inclined to want to talk about crowd safety in a symposium environment with you, Eric Stewart, where might they be able to do that? Well, we do courses in the UK, but we haven't advertised the next one yet because we're still trying to work out a venue. So the next scheduled course for the symposium will be before the Event Safety Alliance, uh, which will be November the 18th and 19th at Rock Littitz. We're delighted to be coming back to Pennsylvania. Um, love that place, love, love Rock Littitz. And we ran a two-day course there last year, which went down really well. Uh, and we're going to go back and do it again. And if you're further north in the border, we'll be following that the following week, uh, working with the Canadian Event Safety Alliance, and we'll be running some courses up there. Details yet to be arranged, but probably the week after the Littitz Conference. That's great. And you know, for those of you listening to the podcast, obviously this is just a taste of what Eric Stewart covers in the Crowd Safety Symposium. And the one thing that we can't do on the podcast, but which I know Eric does extensively, is get people out of their chairs, get people to actually have experiential learning because that's so important to not only hear what one should do, but to try it and see how it works in practice. And Eric, I, I have read the rave reviews of attendees from your crowd safety symposium. And I know that that's one of the things that's most meaningful is actually getting people out of their chairs, on their feet, and feeling what these things are like. So um, 
you know, for people on this podcast, uh, I know that there will be a link up shortly for you to register for the next Crowd Safety Symposium, which will in fact be at uh, the Rock Lidditz campus, uh, the week leading into the Event Safety Summit. Again, November 18 and 19, there'll be a link on the website. Um, and if you wanna hear much more, so not just a taste, but a full meal, and be able to ask questions directly of Eric Stewart, I will tell you from personal experience, it is exceedingly worthwhile. Um, I learn every time I talk to Eric, and you will too. So Eric, any concluding remarks before we let people go for today? Uh, no, the only other thing I would say, Steve, is that I'm really grateful to the Event Safety Alliance for letting me in to the US and now to Canada to be able to share this knowledge. I, I just want to help to get other people to understand crowds so that we can keep people safe. You know, my kids go to festivals, maybe in future years, my grandchildren, but my brothers, my sisters, my aunties, and of course, it's our families that are going to these things and we we need people that we can trust to keep them safe. So I'm really grateful to the ESA and slightly embarrassed. I have to say also that you're going to have an ANSI standard before we've got anything to that equivalent in the UK. The fact that we, you know, we've been over there and we've worked with you for the last five years, but we're leaving you in a position where you're actually just about to overtake us in that regard. It's, it's just a fraction embarrassing. And I hope, <laughs> I hope we'll embarrass others in the UK to, maybe thinking that we could do the same. We'll try. Well, speaking as the chair of the group that is creating this American anti-standard, we would gladly lock arms with you Brits because you're smart and you think like us and we want to solve the same problems together. Absolutely. So with that, uh, Eric Stewart of Gentian Events uh, in the UK, thank you very much. I'm Steve Edelman, the Vice President of the Event Safety Alliance. Thank you very much for listening to this event safety podcast. Uh, join us again. We will come out with more interesting and hopefully useful conversation in the next couple of weeks. Uh, be safe out there. <laughs>